This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, I am Vulture Senior Editor Jesse David Fox, and welcome to Good One, the podcast where we talk to comedians and comedy writers about writing their best jokes. Well, usually that's what it is. Reggie Watts, our guest this week, doesn't write jokes. He doesn't write anything. Not stories, not songs. Reggie Watts is an improviser. Something will pop in his head. He'll sing it, loop it, listen to it, and then just react until he's composed a hilarious, beautiful, can't-quite-put-your-finger-on-it song. And once it's done, it vanishes. I'm not kidding. When I asked what song he might want to talk about for the show, he told me he doesn't remember anything he does after he does it. So we came up with this plan. He'd come into the studio, improvise a song, and whatever he made up, we talk about. And boy, did he not disappoint. So, here's Reggie Watts doing what he does. So 
was reggie watts thank you so much for joining us what just happened uh well what ha- happened was um i just uh you know did some stuff in to this uh, device in front of me here this little looping pedal mm-hmm. along with the reverb pedal yeah what is in your mind when you're about to press a button <laughs> uh i don't know i mean i just i just try to find a, a tempo that feels good and um and then try to do the right amount of bars uh, to um, you know, to give me enough space to to generate something. Yeah, um, it's it's really pretty simple. You have a tempo in your head, and then you start doing it, and then that it goes from there. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's sometimes I'll start, and I'll even have a different feel in my head. But as I start, it kind of changes. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's interesting. I think a good place to start maybe to walk through the device and sort of explain a little bit how it works so people have some context if they uh, can't see it in front of them. Yeah, sure. Yeah, basically it's, uh, you know, I have a I have a reverb pedal called the Hall of Fame um, and uh, kind of standard guitar uh, reverb pedal uh, for reverb. And then um, and then I have this uh, Line 6 DL4, which is a looping pedal. I call it a linear looper just because you can't really, um, you can only add to it. You can't take away from it. So it's kind of a great instrument in that you can't save anything. So there's nothing that's stored in the instrument. Everything is live and made on the spot. So that's always a nice uh, kind of criteria for me. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, and it has some common delay effects built into it. Uh, but it it records up to 15 seconds, I believe, is the total yeah. loop length. Um, and that's kind of it. So you have about 15 seconds to work with. You can layer stuff. Can't layer too many things because the earliest things that you lay down start to um, lower in volume. Yeah. 
um, which is handy for some effects like you heard at the end, like other things were starting to fade out the more I, I kept layering and layering until it comes be, until it becomes just the one thing I'm doing, which is a nice fade out effect. But you have to be you have to manage what you're layering over it. Otherwise, if I do a really strong beat and I like how strong it is and then yeah. I start adding too much on there, the beat gets weaker yeah. as I add more things. So you have to be conscious of those limitations. So for the, for the song you just played, it was um, a pretty it wasn't a strong beat in that way. It was like uh, you ha- you started with it's hard to describe what it was, but you started the thing you, and then you added what to me sounded like like Halloween music. Uh huh. Yeah, sure. When when you heard that, what goes through your head when you hear what you did for that sort of the second part? I mean, yeah. I mean, I I, I just start kind of messing with the effect, and you know, I start start doing something vocally, and uh, and usually usually the sound of it will kind of dictate what it could be. Yeah. Um, and then, and then when I find something that I'm kind of grooving on or it feels, it feels good as like a vibe, then I will, um, I will record that and add that to the loop. So it's just really kind of like every, every layer I add, it's kind of like, is this what I want to add? And then you kind of have to commit to it. So yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of fun in that way. You have to like, just do it right. You know, hopefully. Um, for this song, do you remember what was the thing that, you're like, oh, this is what it is. Was there an aha moment that you were able to discover? Well, nah, not, not really. I mean, well, there was kind of like a, you know, I'm a big fan of Tamron, who's a San Francisco artist, uh, and she's kind of inspired by, I guess, Susie Sue, Susie and the Banshees, mm-hmm. and Cocteau Twins. Yeah, um, and those are all awesome bands. So there was kind of a, a moment where I was like, oh, this is kind of Tamrony, you know. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, there's that, so I can maybe I kind of pull towards that. I'm because I'm going more for vibes than I am um, necessarily a a style or a um, a genre or something. I'm just I'm, I'm I'm listening for what it feels like. Yeah, and um and so it felt more like oh yeah, Tamron kind of you know a wash of slight melancholia. <laughs> the <laughs> the idea that you're going um, as you described, you sort of a vibe opposed to sort of a specific thing feels. As a person who's been following your career for a while, it felt, at least at the beginning, there was more things that felt like, cl- not parodies, but closer to pastiches of a certain type of thing. Was that a deliberate sort of shift as you've moved on? Or you think just sort of as you've done it more to sort of surprise yourself, you've like just seeing, you just sort of, it comes out of you that way? Well, a lot of what I do is is inspired by things that I absorb in my everyday life or things uh, that I become exposed to. I mean, generally, I'm looking for a spirit within different types of music yeah. um, and uh, looking for usually like true talent of some sort, you know, like there's like something that's real within it. And I could find it in pretty much in any genre for the most part. Um, there are the good versions of every type of music that you listen to, you know, yeah. and what I mean by good is just sincere. Yeah. Um, there's uh, something there that wants to. The music you're listening to exists because it wants to exist, as opposed to a manufactured, uh, you know, almost slightly manipulative yeah. um, reason, you know, emotional for very obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, so I, I just absorb a lot, and then those things go into my music uh, because I'm trying to tune into the frequency of whatever the audience I think the audience might enjoy. For for something like this, are you looking for like? how can this be funny? Is that a thing that ever goes through your head of like, I need to find comedy in this? I mean, sometimes when, during my shows, like in the, you know, like this song in particular, it wasn't not necessarily funny, but it's, um, 
Yeah, my show's kind of, I had to kind of give myself permission to stop necessarily being just funny, like an obviously funny, zany mm-hmm. uh, song, um, and be okay with, you know what, it's okay to just do something that's emotional, that's yeah. that's that's musical. But that plays, um, that's something to play off of. Because, uh, you know, for me, I, I love building up an idea that, that can potentially be, I mean, I don't know. I'm just, from yeah. my point of view, I'm like, uh, hopefully it holds it holds attention, it holds space and puts you in another uh, another zone and mentally and then to just throw it all away and yeah. just do something really super stupid. Uh, I really like that contrast of like playing with emotion, something that's like, yeah. oh, I'm feeling really, this is feeling dark or this is feeling sad. And then, you know, suddenly I'm talking Talking, talking about like, hey, people be fucking, you know, or whatever. It's just like, what what just happened? Yeah. Um, so I, I do enjoy that very much. So, so, so for something like this, you might, you would either, how you framed it from before or what you say afterwards would be where it'd be funny. You sort of allow yourself to be honest to whatever it is in the moment, musically, especially. And then, oh, if you did a thing that's sort of serious and keeps attention because they're sort of musically interesting, you'd be like, okay, well, then I'll go sideways. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yep. Um, do you remember when you're like, oh, maybe I can do a rap breakdown in this song? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember doing that because it's, you know, the, the beat was pretty, you know, beady. Um, and Because uh, you added a beat and then you're like, oh, I just added Yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh, that sounds kind of like, yeah, you know, and it's, who doesn't? Who doesn't like a little bit of a hip hop simulation in there? Because I don't, I don't really listen to hip hop, but I, but, but when I do hear it, I'm like, oh, there's a cadence that sounds familiar. Do you remember any of the words you said? Or why you said that? Jeez, uh, not really. That's I mean, mm, no, not really. That's fine. I it, <laughs> I think it's. I asked partly because I think <laughs> it is interesting to people to hear that you you're like I did it and I know you remember that you said words and this was like four minutes like ten minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of times I, I, I kind of it's like a it's like going in and out of focus, like a camera lens going in and out of focus. Like sometimes there's there are words and there are coherent sentences, and sometimes there are just ideas of something that kind of sounds like words. Yeah. Um, and then there are sounds that sound like words that aren't words at all. Yeah, because it sounded like you said the word eyes, but also eyes is like a thing that you would sing, and then you're like, maybe I'm saying a thing. We're like, it. Yeah. It's that feeling of like, is he? You're trying to latch onto it. And yes. You. And you, you uh, sometimes will just do complete gibberish. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Very uh, much so. <laughs> is it a thing of, are you, will you do gibberish in, until you find something? If you find something, you need to find something? Um, you know, I kind of, I use the gibberish as just a, you know, uh, kind of allowing myself to just use, you know, syllabic sounds and, and textures and things like that as a form of language um, because it kind of sounds, If it, it's like, you know, I was actually greatly inspired by Elizabeth Fraser of the Cocteau Twins because, mm-hmm. um, you know, hers was a mix, a mixture of some gibberish and I think Gaelic um, and English. Yeah. So it was like a weird mixture. And the, the early recordings, it was definitely more gibberish, like a made up language, like a language like children would make up or something yeah. like that. And, um, and what I loved about that is, uh, you know, I liked lyrics growing up. You know, I, I memorized lyrics to a certain extent, but mostly I like the sound. Yeah. The, 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 the sounds of the melodies and the sounds of the syllables going together. So when I heard Cocteau Twins, that was like really liberating to think, oh, you can just sing in a way that sounds like language, but it doesn't have to actually be saying anything. And in a way, you kind of formulate your own ideas. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, I also realized that I 
like the phrasing of certain words, but I have like I have no every to me every song is about sort of like a general love or whatever. Yeah, name. sure. <laughs> and there, there's I can't remember the name of the band, but I remember they were like their lyrics were unclear. Like the lyrics are for us. Just know that there are lyrics and we did it on purpose. But why do you need to know what they are? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because uh, it, it's the same thing with like like writers. Like I have a lot of a lot of comedian friends that are writers and I have a lot of songwriter friends that sit down and they write a song and they, they write out all the lyrics and they have – there's an intention behind it. And it's beautiful. Like, I mean, there's many songs, the lyrics, of course. They're just sure. mind-blowing. They're incredible. Um but sometimes I, I find it funny that when I go and perform or if I'm doing a comedy bit and someone writes a thing and they know that I'm probably not going to do anything even close to what they wrote, <laughs> I feel kind of bad because <laughs> I'm just like, you know, if I had my own show, if I had my own talk show or something like that, like all the nine writers that you see in the hallway, there'd probably be one writer yeah. <laughs> and just kind of like a, a narrative architect or something yeah. like that. And so it's just for me it's i i prefer it's easier to just do to make up the lyrics in the moment cuz that yeah. way you don't have to do all that work <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if you could maybe describe your mental state during that in so much as like are is it sort of an extreme presence in what you're doing or almost like the opposite of like you are not almost conscious in what you're doing or is it some weird version of both yeah, it's it's kind of like channeling. I mean, in a way, like you know, you, you, with the cool thing about looping is once you lay down your basic idea, that kind of inspires the next thing. So you're just kind of listening, or I am specifically, I'm I am listening for the next idea. So I'm just kind of it's kind of like being out in, the, in like the ether or some mm -hmm. kind of like swimming around in something, and then suddenly something appears, and you're like, oh, that, and you just kind of go with the impulse, um, but. With looping, it's great because it buys you a little bit of time. You can actually just chill for a second yeah. and go, okay, what what do I hear? Yeah. You know, and get out of your own way. So it's mostly getting out of my own way. Yeah, it's interesting because you there's those moments where you and the audience are doing the exact same thing. Yes, and and I think that's part of what's so exciting, which is because you're doing the same thing, your brain naturally tries to like think of what you would do, but you then do a thing that's obviously. You know, it taps into whatever is in your mind, but I think that's part of what's so drawing, uh, what's so fascinating, I guess, by it is that there is that thing of like, not necessarily danger, but it is what we are both in the same place. Yeah, yeah, and I, I that's what I like about improvisation is that any any good improvisation, it's that you can almost like everybody can almost feel the next idea. Yeah, you know, or some people can like you know like when I'm watching improv comedy. Uh, and watching like some of the greats improvise, they are especially the ones that have kind of like forgotten about like if they trained, they kind of forget their training, like mm -hmm. the, the Del Closian training or whatever. And it's just pure improvisation based off of chemistry. Sometimes I'll I'll, I'll be like, I bet you, yes, I knew they were going <laughs> to go there. I knew they were going to go there. I could feel it. Yeah. I knew that was coming out. Um, but then other times someone will just come out and just give you a right hook, and you're yeah. like, what just what just happened? And that's beautiful. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's the beauty of improvisation. Everybody's kind of there. We're all at the same time, but someone has to pull the trigger. Have you ever uh, talked or sort of met with a neuroscientist about what you're doing? You know, I, I've actually, uh, ever since a friend of mine reaps one, um, he's a uh, MC beatboxer guy, and he wins all these competitions all the time. He did this thing where they put him in a uh, an MRI. neuroscientist, he had yeah. an fMRI, okay. so they could do real-time yeah. um, like analytics. And uh, yeah, and so he just kind of beatboxed and improvised something. And I think they asked him to do a song that he, or something he'd done before, and mm -hmm. then also 
an improvisation or something like that. And they wanted to compare the, the two different things. And I think there's been more research done yeah. on this. But it's interesting where the, the areas of the brain that light up. And I would be really interested myself in seeing what yeah. lights up when I'm when I'm doing my thing, especially that I'm using language. Like, does it all come from the same place or does it fire from different regions? It's interesting. Literally today, the Washington Post put out an article about improvisation. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, where they scan brains of a freestyler, a person doing jazz piano, and improv Ooh, comedians. Nice. And so the, the, the comedians is the newest part of this, this guy's research. Yeah. But I, I wrote down kind of the thing that they said, and it'll yeah. see if it res- resonates, oh, which is the guy said he found that when you're improvising, the self-expression portion of the prefrontal cortex is sort of firing on maximum. But also the self-monitoring areas are uh. like as lowest as they'll ever be. Oh, gotcha. Right. That that completely makes sense, of course. You've now been doing music for 20 plus years. And since you've had the loop pedal, how have you gotten better? Well, um, I mean, some of it, some of it is learning curve of the machine, you know, kind of like figuring out what I can do with the machine. Um, so there's a period of time uh, for that to evolve. Uh, but then there, then there are just kind of subject matter or feelings and mm-hmm. um, approaches to how I improvise. And those are kind of evolutions independent of the machine. But, um, you know, there's still many things that I'd like to do live with the machine that I haven't done because I, I just haven't gotten into that state, you know, to actually try those things. But once in a while, I'll, I'll discover something new. I mean, it's just, I guess it's just better in that, you know, I'm, I'm able to commit to things um, and, kind of learn uh, how to mix my voice, you know, a little bit better yeah. because each layer that I'm laying down, it depends on how far away from the microphone I am or the angle, if I'm off axis or not, or if, um, you know, um, if I'm like right up on the microphone and, I, and I'm yelling, but I'm not really yelling. I'm just like silent yelling, but it sounds like real yelling. You know, it's, yeah. there's all these like tricks that you can do with microphones. So it's, so I've gotten better with my combination of my voice and using the microphone together yeah. collectively as a, as an instrument. And based on sort of what I described, at least what this nurse, do you feel like your the self-monitoring is lower than it has been? Like you when you start it really is like a state where there's no one saying don't do that or it is free? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's moments of that. I mean, like in the beginning uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I go in and out of those things. Like sometimes I'll just say, you know what, just go for it, you know, and I'll just do whatever. And I'll just tell myself, you just have to make something out of any of this. Yeah. Fortunately, you can make something out of almost anything. So it's <laughs> it's fine. But uh, But yeah, there are times when I just kind of really just go for it. And then there are other times where I want, I want it to feel a certain way. Like I, I like a generalized aesthetic. Like oh, I want this to be kind of quiet and careful and um, have a little bit more melodic possibility yeah. or something like that. Um, and that's where I'm, I guess some, there's more monitoring there just because I'm trying to. Is that something, something you, sort of that decision, sort of there's certain songs that, you know, um, like when you did the, the Radiohead thing on the Central Park album for, yeah. where you're like, let me see if I can do a Radiohead thing. Or was it more that you laid down that thing that sounds like a Radiohead? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know, it was something, I think I had, I had done, I, I had done that idea a little bit because uh, I remember like doing stand-up, you know, being on stand-up nights and I, and I would, uh, and it was just bothering me that everybody loved Radiohead so much. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, enough already. I get it. They're very innovative. I get it. <laughs> 
And I was just kind of a little like, I mean, I love them. I think yeah. they're a great band, but it was just everybody was just like Radiohead, Radiohead, Radiohead. And I realized that no one was really parodying yeah. Radiohead because, because I, I, well, I, I think it's just, just some of it is like they, they just thought like it's unparodyable. You know, like, like you can't, you can't do that. You know, it's, it's Radiohead, you know? And so I was like, well, I love Radiohead and I pretty much know how the music, I can capture the essence of what they're doing. And it's not that, it's (laughs) not that crazy. Um, And so, uh, and so I started doing that a little bit. And so it was just for, it was in my mind anyways, because I just kind of wanted to make fun of those guys for a little bit. (laughs) On, uh, on Spatial, there's that song, Apples. Did you know that you wanted to do something? Do you remember, you know, like. You're like, this song's about apples, and then it was about sort of like being true to yourself or whatever. And, but it was a more melodic one. Yeah. No, I had no idea what was going to happen on that one. That's... I said it was a song about apples, and that was, I had no So, yeah, you're idea. fake. You do fake intros that yeah. are somewhat like essentially like you give yourself a suggestion, like an improv crowd would give, and you're yeah. like, Okay, what's apples? And then it's complete. Yeah, it's just not about apples at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I love I love setting up, you know, and just describing, or sometimes I'll just go, I'll go to great lengths of, you know, describing what you're about to hear and then, or even sometimes I'll even take the suggestions from the audience and then, and just never use any of it. Enjoy this, uh, this song. This is a song about apples. Do it right. 
Yes. <laughs> It's my favorite. <laughs> Is it really sort of like in one ear, out the other? When you say apples and then it's sort of gone? You're not like, you know, free associating apples. You're just sort of like no. apples and it's gone. Yeah, it's like uh, this song about apples. That's it. That's about the extent <laughs> of it. And then I just laid down, you know, something. I was like, oh, that's a really nice, that's a nice bass line. And, and, you, and it definitely evokes a certain type of melody. And then, um, and then I just got lucky that, you know, words were just being very fluid at yeah. that point. So ideas that I've been thinking about, about relationships and... And what does that mean to human beings, you know, and, and where we're at in this modern day and like, what, what is a relationship? All those types of things just kind of all came out. What is the feeling when you're like, this song is over or about to be over? Um, I just feel like it's, I've said enough or it, I don't want to tr- tire the audience out too much. There have definitely been times when I've, you know, like not listened back, but someone was like, oh yeah, that, that song you did was like 15 minutes or something. I was like, what? Oh, that's way too long. <laughs> that's, that's song shouldn't be 15 minutes. But, um, you know, there's ultimately no rules, but I, I try to, I try to err on the side of brevity. Yeah. But also like, I think with the song, like you just played that those, the crescendoing of vocals are like, well, I guess this is going to be like a big thing. There's yes. sort of only one way that can go. Yeah, exactly. Well, I can't undo it. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, I could continue, but you know, it's like, it just feels better when it kind of like climaxes and then just, just cuts out. Uh, we'll be back with more Reggie Watts after this word from our sponsor. Bonjour, c'est moi. Je m'appelle Jesse. Uh, you might be wondering why am I speaking perfect French right now? Well, it's because Good One, a.k.a. Bien Un, will be recording a very special episode at the Montreal Just for Last Festival, Thursday, July 26th at 3 p.m. And the guest will be, drumroll, making his triumphant return, Will Forte. Yeah, you know Will. He, he is so funny and nice, and he was on Saturday Night Live, and then he was in other things, and he was so funny in that. Uh, and so we'll be talking about the final scene of The Last Man on Earth. But, you know, I'll also ask him, you know, where are we at with this MacGruber sequel that uh, everyone's been asking about since uh, the first one. So uh, the point is, you should come to this show. Uh, if you're in Montreal or if, if you're thinking about maybe traveling to Montreal, which you should because it is uh, really, really nice in the summer. So Thursday, July 26th at 3 p.m. See you there. Au revoir! We are back with Reggie Watts. So, so for you, why improvisation? Uh, it's just easier. Uh, you don't have to memorize stuff. You don't have to rehearse. I really, really love that. What has then the process been as a person who has had jobs where, like, Comedy Bang Bang, where it's scripted, or James Corden, what is sort of the dialogue that happens between you and people trying to get you to say things on, that they decided ahead of time for you to say? <laughs> Well, with Bang Bang, it was, you know, it's roughly, I mean, you know, there's there's definitely this thing where, you know, I did drama and I had to memorize lines to a certain extent. And, um, you know, I played in a lot of music groups where there was music and I had to, you know, play violin with an orchestra. And, you know, so I, I came from a tradition of, of you know, at least trying to memorize things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, an orchestra, I kind of learned by the music, but I also listened by, I learned by ear as well. And uh, and after a while, it just it was hard for me to hold attention, you know, uh, to just like look at a script. Like when someone is given a script and they're like, "Oh, I really love this script." For me, for comedy, bang bang, I just looked at my lines and then I just tried my best to remember what they were, mm-hmm. and that was kind of it. I didn't really know the context of the sketch at all, so uh, 
So I would I would be watching it in real time. So I'd be like, oh, that's what it's about. That's why I'm saying yeah. that line. So it's more that, and um, you know, and then I have some flexibility with that. And with the Late Late Show, there's definitely moments where, you know, we've done bits and there's scripted bits, but it has um, we have access to um, to a teleprompter, which is the <laughs> ultimate for me because yeah. all I have to do is just read the yeah, words, yeah. and that's super easy. Yeah. Um, so, or voiceover work is really great because there's the script and yeah. I just read it, you know, and just go for it. And I don't have to worry about memorizing it, embodying it. And so to me, um, you know, it's just getting people used to my style of, uh, you know, uh, working with scripts and things like that or structure. It's just that there should be some a little bit of leeway. I'll, you know, I'll try to get it across, but. What influence did drugs have on your perspective of how you uh, treat your comedy? Well, I mean, I do, I, you know, I, I enjoyed, uh, I had many incredible experiences on psychedelics, LSD and, and mushrooms and a lot of amazing experiences on, you know, Robitussin, um, uh, DXM specifically, the dextromethorphan in Robitussin um, and marijuana, of course, uh, you know, not so much with the synthetics. I tried, you know, a little bit of cocaine, but I was like, eh, this is like, it's like doing a bunch of shots of espresso. I don't get sure. it. Um, and, uh, you know, ecstasy was great the first two times. And then it just was diminishing returns. And I was like, nah, this is stupid. Too chemically feeling. I don't like that chemical feeling. It's pretty gross. So um, having had like great psychedelic experience, psychotropic dissociative experiences definitely uh, allowed me to know what those worlds were like and those states were like. And for me, I kind of settled on THC as kind of, the ultimate of all of all of the drugs that I've done, at least of the organic ones, and especially edibles. So uh, I love that feeling of being overwhelmed, sometimes being too high and mm-hmm. and being kind of anxious and figuring out how do I how do I just cognitively change what's happening here, um, and in doing so. Uh, it, it's kind of being in the, it's kind of like being in the eye of a hurricane or something. Yeah. You kind of, instead of being in the hurricane, you kind of move yourself to the eye and then you can feel the intensity of it around you. You can harness the power. So, so there's like, so I do like kind of reflecting that feeling sometimes, uh, like, like I'm performing for people. I always say, I want people who are in the audience high to feel like, whoa, this is awesome. And I want people who aren't high to feel like they are high. Yeah. And that's. Kind kind of it. Are you, do you perform high? I do probably like uh, I don't know maybe like fifty percent of the time. Is it any different for you? Is it just sort of the nature of where you are and how your day is going? <laughs> yeah, I mean it depends. Sometimes I've tried it in different ways. I've tried like just before I go on. I've tried like smoking just before going on, or taking an edible before I go on, or taking an edible halfway through the show. You know, I've tried all different. There's no formula for what yeah. makes for the optimal situation. I always just kind of experiment a little bit. I mean, ultimately, I don't want to be so high that I. Um, neglect the audience. That's the biggest fear. Um, and which has, you know, happened uh, maybe twice, maybe in my life where I've just been so high. My friends were like, wow, that was, that was something, you know, <laughs> you know, in general, a lot of comedians, the traditional comedians, they, they get the last one they get in. And as a result, they know the joke is working or whatever. You're describing how you want the high people to be like, this is amazing. And the non-high people to feel high, but, Sort of what is your relationship to of the audience to you in terms of when you're performing, how are you reacting to their reaction? I mean, I think it's all real time. It's kind of the, that feeling that we were talking about in improvisation when the audience, when you're 
everyone's kind of in the same state. I'm kind of listening to that. And, and when I do things or when I make a decision um, and I have, I hear a reaction from the audience and then usually that'll definitely inform me. Like I'll figure, Oh, now I'll go a little bit heavier on this and yeah. now I'm going to back off. Or sometimes like in the beginning or, you know, depending on the situation, if no one's laughing, I know that I'm just, I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of like scrambling things so that it's very hard to, to kind of figure out what, how you want to react. And that's, yeah. that's, that's a place where I'm kind of more dominating the, the moment uh, for a little while, just to kind of, fragment and or sh I should say defrag the audience a little bit and then and then I start becoming a little bit more generous. Are you a person who sort of believes in the collective unconscious and do you feel like you tap into it? Sure. Yeah, definitely, you know. I was hearing on NPR today about uh these anthropologists that were doing studies on a tribe in Africa that were kind of the closest to the hunter-gatherer, you know, um existence and you know whereas before people I mean, anthropologists thought, oh, yeah, well, the men kind of went out and hunted, and because they hunted, they learned how to be cooperative or whatever. But they found out it was actually the women that produced most of the food because they would you know, they would gather tubers and mm -hmm. things like that and bring it to the village. And then the the children would be raised trying to – or, I mean, um, rationing these 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 foods, these food stuff. So the idea is that uh, – you know, that we're collaborative. The reason why we're successful is because we're collaborative as a species, um, not necessarily biologically driven to naturalistically be hunters. Um, uh, it's usually, how do we figure this out? How do we not starve collectively? So, um, and that just kind of, and then while I was driving, I was kind of looking at traffic, you know, like I always look at, look at the people in their cars and I'm like, yeah, we're all, they're all the same species. We're all mm -hmm. here. We're all the same species. And we're all just kind of like deciding on what this is yeah. all the time. I've heard you talk about how you're influenced by uh, the Situationists, mm. the philosophy group. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about who they are and how it connects to what you do. Yeah, I mean, in my you know somewhat limited understanding of the Situationists, um, started by this guy named Guy Debord, who's this French French dude uh, back in the fifties, and uh, kind of created this. Uh, I guess it, was, it began as an artistic kind of code movement philosophy that was based off of the, I guess the Dadaists uh, meet nihilists a little bit, kind of like um, maybe a little bit of Marx in there, but I don't know. But but it was like this kind of uh, hybridization and it, it had a lot to do with uh, decontextualization. So like um, being a visitor in your own city. So walking out in the streets and figuring out ways to disorient yourself within your, to disorient yourself within your own community, so that you can see it in a new way instead of getting used to it. So they used to look up and like uh, at buildings when they would walk. So they would look at the architecture of the, uh, above them instead of this, the human scale in front of them, and uh, they would take absinthe, you know, and just kind of lose themselves in a very familiar place. And uh, and then that grew it um, and to include other. Uh, countries and then became the situations international and then um, you know and they kind of morphed into like some quasi political but kind of like like stunts or pranks mm -hmm. that kind of pushed people to the edge of like provoking almost to the edge of violence is how I interpret it as um, and um, and 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 then pulling the rug out before it gets to actual violence and so that it leaves people in this crazy state where they have to kind of just deal with their emotions mm. in that moment. And then that kind of like evolved Mal Malcolm McLaren was a situationist and, you know, was uh, credited with 
starting the Sex Pistols as living mannequins for his fashion. And uh, and then, of course, the punk movement yeah. and it kind of encapsulates that idea of the Situationists. And um, I really, really enjoyed where that was coming from. I saw a play when I first moved to New York in Williamsburg at this garage theater, and they basically uh, kind of they kind of condensed the Situationist uh, history uh, in a in a play, and uh, it was just mind blowing. I, I I thought it was the most engaging, interactive, non traditional garage based theater experience, and that really activated me. Uh, because I really like that idea of pushing people into states of confusion and uncertainty and almost where they, they feel like they're they're mad, like they could almost mm-hmm. be mad. Um, that's not necessarily – that's not the state I go for all the time. But that has happened at times with my stuff. But um, I just like that idea because it, it, it just takes people out of their normal routines. An example that I was thinking of was the first time I saw you, you spoke ex- exclusively in a British accent, the entire set. And I – at no point did I know you weren't British until not the second time I saw you because I was like, well, he's doing an American accent this time. Mm-hmm. But then the third time I was like, you did an American accent again. I was like, oh, he must not be British. I, I was like, <laughs> as my friend is like, he's he's British. He's like, oh, no, no. He, that's, is that sort of your version of it where you, you completely like, here's a reality. And by presenting it completely as such, you're like, you sh- – you, you know, in some way, you're sort of showing people the the unreality of what they think of as a reality. <laughs> Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like you just kind of you just assume that reality. You know, it's like, um, yeah. I mean, I, it's kind of like uh, like parallel reality travel. You know, it's like here's a here's a reality where I'm I'm British all the time, and then if you flick a switch, there's another reality where I'm. You know, I sound like. Maybe I could be from some general place in Europe or something. I'm just talking like this, wherever, and um, you know that's the way I talk. And then I and then I kind of go into these these character channeling character type of situations that are really fun for me because after a while, if you do them long enough, people just accept it as mm-hmm. normal, and that's the reality. And the the biggest compliment is for definitely is in the UK and growing up an Anglophile. You know, doing shows in, in the UK and having a lot of British people come over and like, I thought you were from, I thought you were, I thought you were British. I thought for sure you were English. And I'm yeah. like, oh, that's such a huge compliment. Has it changed now that sort of more people know who you are? Right? Because I think I had that experience because this was, I mean, before, this was maybe 10 years ago, I think I first saw you. Mm-hmm. How has it changed that now you're going to people like, oh, I'm going to go see Reggie Watts. When you're trying to sort of confront what they expect from a show when they have a certain amount of expectations because it's you. Yeah, I mean, I don't really, I don't really think about that too much um, because usually people are trying, like, they're expecting. I guess they're kind of expecting the unexpected, so uh, they're not in a state where they're wanting to judge necessarily. I've definitely done gigs where uh, people kind of weren't feeling what I was doing at all, and like I was doing beats, and they, but the beats were kind of like samey sounding, and you know, and. People were saying it from the from the audience and things like that. Um, so, I mean, I'm always trying to challenge myself to do different things and to present what I'm doing in a fresh, sincere way for myself, but also for the audience. So, I think that I, I don't generally worry about it too much. Like, oh, you know, they've seen me; and they know that I do this one thing. Like, I don't really think like that yeah. too much, especially when you're starting out. I mean, you're as you sort of explained, is an amount of disruption that you want to try to create. Did you feel like you were sort of disrupting specifically towards comedy or disrupting by using comedy? Sort of was your target 
the expectations of a comedy show or using a comedy show to sort of do a more general reference? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a little bit of both, but I think you know, definitely using a comedy show as a way to kind of subvert the idea of a comedy show. But you know, when I first moved to New York in 2003 and started doing "Invite Them Up" um, with Eugene Merman and Bobby Tisdale's show uh, at Rafifi, uh, a lot of the comedy was that. You know, yeah. it was it was already people kind of subverting the idea of comedy, and I guess that's where the idea alt comedy came from, or at least I would call it kind of the second wave of alt comedy. First yeah. being like Sarah Silverman and Ben Stiller, and and the State a little bit later, and UCB, but um, yeah. So I mean, it was already kind of doing that. So it was kind of like punk rock comedy, or like like I. It felt similar to like uh, when I would hang out with my skateboarder friends, you yeah. know, like around a pool and they're like all skating a bowl or whatever. And, and I'm just watching. I wasn't a skateboarder, but I was watching and the, the whole culture of just hanging out and going, oh, check this out. You know, like, oh, that's so dope. You know, and so people were just kind of just happy to see other people doing stuff yeah. and, and, and kind of rooting each other on. And so we were all kind of figuring out ways to subvert things. And then, of course, I came from a, a performance art background as well. And performance art, it really kind of bleeds the line um, where uh, you, you know, like what I was doing could be, I could be doing what I'm doing in, ex in an experimental theater or contemporary performance space, which I have, yeah. and haven't really changed the format too much from what I would do at Caroline's. Yeah. Um, and... I just kind of adapt a little bit, but there's also been times when I've gone on and just kind of done stand-up comedy like this, and I do jokes. You know, I look at a you know a fake list that doesn't exist on it, <laughs> and I'm like looking at my jokes and going, "What else? Okay, let's see." You know, have you ever noticed how you know I'm doing that kind of stuff? Yeah. And I'll do that for the whole set, and so I'll just be a quote-unquote comedian. Yeah, and that's my set. Yeah, so um, I like that too. I like yeah. playing into it as well. Um. I've heard you talk about uh, how you sort of believe we are assimilation culture. Mm. Uh, I was wondering how you could talk about how that also influences sort of what you try to do or how, how your comedy is sort of a uh, comment upon that or sort of plays into that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's it's like everything that humans do, like we're we're all, I, you know, that's why I, I do call ourselves, I mean, there's A, I'm like, it's highly likely that we're, possibly living in some sort of form mm -hmm. of simulation. But independent of that, I also believe that human beings are a simulation species. Like everything that we do is all simulative. So, um, you know, the clothing that we wear was inspired by, oh, we see animals with fur. And, oh, like the fur, let's put the fur on us. Oh, wow, it keeps us warmer. Like, you know, we see dragonflies roaming around. Someone's like, I wonder if we made a helicopter that had more of a design like this or tanks look like beetles. Like we, we mimic everything around us. There really isn't, we're not, we're not very original yeah. as human beings. What we're good at is remixing and kind of like repurposing. Um, and um, and so to that degree, that's I'm using that spirit yeah. of human kind of, I don't know, uh, appropriation, if you will, uh, to kind of just like reflect back all of the various forms of simulation that, that we're all involved in every single day. Yeah, it's like... Um showing the matrix code it's not like sort of giving the pill that you're like here you're sort of just like oh there's a code and i can't read it because there's those symbols but they're like yeah here it is yeah yeah it's like <laughs> here's the stuff here's all the stuff guys you know <laughs> yeah. it's like i remember this yeah and there's a little bit of this too yeah. and we also have the you know because it's just funny to me i i love uh yeah I, l I love being able to infiltrate like the larger systems and to be able to like you know kind of use that to to a good degree in that way too 
as a person who's improvising and doing a thing that you you don't do again, do you like that your your art is temporary and in some way sort of you dispose of it? Like not necessarily disposable, but sort of it is a thing that you don't look back upon. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like that, I, you know, especially in the early days, I loved like, I'm just going to do all this, stu- this stuff and, and, you know, most of it's not recorded, you know, no, none of it's preserved, but people who were there at that gig will remember it. And that's cool. I like that. Nowadays, I'm, you know, trying to figure out ways to be able to capture those performances and, and use them in some way. Um, so... Yeah, so I, you know, so I lately I've been with my six, excuse me, my six track looper. Uh, I it saves the loops, so I can just keep toggling up to a free a free loop and then start from scratch. But I still have that last one that I did, and then I can send that to my friend John Tejada, um, you know, to do a remix or to like create some kind of a beat based off of that or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I do like the idea of using all the stuff that I'm doing, um, not not like maniacally so like i'm not i'm not like hyper focused on that but uh but i am trying to figure out ways to yeah use it do you try to keep up with current culture and current popular culture specifically so you have touchstones to sort of communicate to like what your audience might be listening to yeah to to degree i mean being on the late late show kind of allows me to keep up with you know the pop kind of aspect of things um, without having to really do much. I just come to the show, you hear the music they're playing in between, you know, when the audience is just hanging out mm-hmm. uh, when we're not filming. So those tracks, the bands that we have on, the things that um, James is talking about in the monologue, the guests that are on the show. So I definitely have an have access to whatever's happening right now. Um, and because I don't really... Like when I look at the news, I don't. I rarely look at entertainment. I mean, I, I do sometimes, but mostly it's technology. So I just look at yeah. technology, and that to me has a lot more interest, uh, and also says more about where we are necessarily than pop music or pop uh, culture. But I do enjoy. You know, I grew up listening to pop music, so I, I love it. Um, but I don't actively look look for it. But thanks to my job, I am exposed yeah. to it. So I will use that, of course, yeah, as much as possible. Uh, you mentioned technology. And I, in your – it's a theme that you'll – if you I've seen you perform a bunch of times or even your specials, you talk about sort of science and technology. How does that connect? Sort of why is that something that you're so passionate about? Uh, you know, I don't know. Since I was a kid, I love gadgets and uh, science. I think it's just because science uh, shows us possibilities and um, also shows us – uh, different ways to view reality and uh, what's possible in reality and um, our understanding of who we are in the universe. And I think that that's incredibly powerful and exciting. And I like that it's not dogmatic and um, and the results can be helpful and beneficial. They obviously can be very destructive as well, but, um, but I'm, I'm for the, you know, the good improvements and yeah. uh, making human being, human beings like all of our lives uh, easier in the sense that, you know, Hopefully, you know, hopefully maybe decades down the line, we can get out of this inequity aspect and get human beings at least in a tighter zone of uh, survivability so that we're not having to worry about, oh, where where am I going to sleep tonight? Uh, How am I going to eat? Like all these basic things that no one should ever be worrying about. We have plenty of resources for everybody on the planet. So for me, science is about solving problems and engineering, science and engineering. And I have a a lot of respect and revere for engineers and scientists. Yeah. 
um, anybody in technical fields, even production, if I'm on a movie set or a TV thing, like the first people I pay attention to are all the production people. Like, what are they doing? Like, oh, with the gaffers and the grips and, and what are the PAs doing? Like, who are the PAs? And, oh, I see they're working really hard and I like want to – I want to – shine light on them as well to just be like, hey, we're all doing this together. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a hierarchy. Yeah, it's interesting. The way you described sort of science and technology was, and it's not too different way of how you described um, a lot of what you tried to do in terms of showing what an audience is doing. It's sort of like, mm. oh, this is sort of nor- another way forward. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to show people there, there are multiple, it's not just one way or yeah. it's not just two ways, it's it's 6,000 ways. So you, I know you've experimented with, experimented with some VR stuff and I, I, you recently shot uh, your sort of sitcom Crow's Nest while uh, live streaming it. Are, are there things that you want to do in the future with your art that sort of the technology doesn't exist yet to do it? Like, can you think of things that you're like, oh, I'd like to do that someday, and I hope technology is there for when I want to do it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, we have all the, there, we have all of the pieces um, right now, like all of the fields are there, like AR is, is, is on its way, um, you know, moving away from phones um, to glasses where it's supposed to be, and, um and and VR is obviously on its way. Um, holographic projection technology of all different sorts. You know, uh, there's different methods for creating these Im- these images. So the idea for you know projecting ideas or or being immersed in an idea yeah. um, exists, and it's it's being developed. So it's not necessarily. I don't think it's funny because like anything that I'd want to do. Uh, the, it all does exist already, yeah. but but putting it together and how convincing it is and how non gadgety and gimmicky that's that's another question. So I'd say you know for me in the future to be able to um, you know like I want to do like multi channel music and you know create a multi channel mixer so I can position my voice in different areas of the room um, and have some automation elements to that. And that, that is possible now, but it takes a lot of engineering. Yeah. Um, and people have to create a rig for that, but you know, but I'm meeting people that it's like, my dreams are coming true. Um, you know, going to Memphis meets and trying, um, you know, lab grown duck breast. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, my gosh, this is crazy. It's like maybe, you know, 40, 50 people have tried this, you know, on the entire planet. And like, what? This is crazy. Or, uh, you know, going to a multi-channel place and like, oh, my voice is here. You know, the mixer, the interface isn't right, but, um, but this could be great, you know? Yeah. So I've experienced the, the, the beginning steps of the things that I want to, um, be involved with. And, and that's why I, I I try to meet those people, uh, so that I can at least have an opinion to help help them craft yeah. how artists will use this. And so they don't waste a lot of time going down an avenue that's that an artist will walk at me like, I don't know, this is stupid. Yeah, because you can see your show, when like in so much as that sort of you're uh, bending a reality or sort of you, if you have the space behind them as well. Like there's something about it brings them more in. If you're not, instead of just sort of they're performing in sort of one way directional, if it is all around, it seems exactly what you would hope to do. Especially with your last album calling Spatial, it feels. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's like I'm trying to get that. I mean, ultimately, the voice and, you know, a microphone or even not a microphone, even just a, 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 a space with excellent acoustics, I can do a show there as well. It's like no technology whatsoever. And uh, if people are listening, it can 
create incredible effect because there is no technology. There's there's nothing there. The only technology is just the evolution of language and understanding. But when technology is used in that way where it's invisible and it gets out of the way, then that's what I'm looking for. I'm, mm-hmm. It's not – I never use technology to the point at which I, I think, oh, I, I can't do this without the technology. For me, it's like, what can technology enhance? What 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 can this? What magic can this generate? How can this? How can technology? How can I help technology get out of the way? Yeah. So that we're not thinking about it. So that people are like this entire, you know, like someone going off about yeah. all the stuff this system does. But then when people are like at a show, they're like, meh. Yeah. That's cool, but you know, I'm like, what does that's, it do? that's yeah. not that's not that's not good enough. So that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's called the laughing round. So okay. it's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. <laughs> okay. So usually we ask a, a bunch of sort of more rapid fire questions, but because you are you, I was wondering if I could ask one of them and you can do it as a song. Sure. Uh, so uh, can uh, can you tell a joke joke, like a, like a street joke? Sure. Yeah. Let's try it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a squirrel walks into a diner and uh, and says uh, to the diner keep, let me get some of the uh, number threes. Diner keep says, uh, 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 what's going on? And the squirrel's like, uh, you heard me. He said, no, no, I didn't. He's like, well, you, why'd you respond? He's like, oh, yeah, that's true. Well, we're all out of the number threes. Squirrel's like, ah, oh, that sucks. I really do love them. That works. <laughs> okay. That's it for another episode of Good One. Reggie Watts' special, Spatial, is on Netflix. You can listen to Why Shit So Crazy and Alive at Central Park wherever you stream music. You can see him nightly on The Late Late Show with James Corden. Follow Reggie on Twitter, at Reggie Watts. Good One is produced by Nick Rad with production help from Marissa Melnick. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. And hey, if you know one who might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new comedian and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.